cast i'm really happy that you've come back to the podcast to hear about consequences i know i know you want to hear more about bill white and paul cantrell our favorite two characters from the battle of athens but before i get to that and i swear i will get to that i'm going to take a turn into some what i'm calling crunchy stuff there's a lot to be learned about the aftershocks of the battle of athens i'm going to focus on two specific consequences namely the crumbling of the Tennessee Democratic machine and the revolution in 20th century public administration that I think had a lot to do with Athens. These points are linked together. The second follows from the first. The Democratic machine collapse in Tennessee after Athens, I believe, helped to usher in an era of localized government reform. To help explain why this happened, let alone how it happened, I'm actually going to bring in a medieval Islamic philosopher, and you'll probably hear some corny jokes. Let's start with the collapse of the Democrat machine after Athens with our old acquaintance, E.H. Crump, the corrupt mayor of Memphis. Remember him? Remember his theme song? As you'll recall, Paul Cantrell was attached at the hip to E.H. Crump, and he was attached at the hip to E.H. Crump's political life's work, which was a political bossism that crushed opposition and gave him virtually unlimited power. McMinn County acted as a kind of political outpost for Democrats in the hills of eastern Tennessee. Crump and Cantrell operated in the golden age of Democrat control of Tennessee when the party's power was at its peak. But the teeth of the machine's gears started to shred after the Battle of Athens. It looks like the battle broke something in the wheelhouse of the Democrats. Now, I think on a historical basis, I think this is all arguable, might be disputed by a historian. But I'm going to stand by this assertion, I'm going to tell you why. I don't think you can deny that the battle sent shockwaves through the party. This was national news. This was front-page New York Times. This was a big deal. The Tennessee Democrat Party made immediate statements decrying the violence, saying it had nothing to do with Democrat governance, but the damage was already done. Papers castigated the machine and talked about corruption openly. The principal players in the Democrat machine then seemed to make mistake after mistake. Governor McCord, who had anemically handled the Athens conflict, as you'll recall, then went on to make another political miscalculation, enacting new taxes. Yeah, usually not a good idea after you've started a riot to then turn around and tax people. Back in Memphis, E.H. Crump clashed with his black constituents, and in other sectors across the state he did the same thing. So by the time 1948 came around and those elections, blood was in the water for political sharks. Democrats in Tennessee seemed to have a real inability to understand the changing electorate. Athens showed that a new group of people were preparing to enter politics. It reminds me a lot of the 2016 and 2018 elections that I just experienced in the last few years. In 2016, Donald Trump won by appealing to forgotten rural voters in swing states. In 2018, women showed up to the polls for a midterm election that ended Republican control of the House of Representatives and gave it to the Democrats. The lesson here should be obvious. Anyone not paying attention to the changing political tides will drown in them. 
Athens showed that young GIs had opinions. The soldiers coming back would get involved in politics unless they were listened to. Besides the young GIs, which the Crump machine had decided to beat over the head, Crump also ignored two key constituencies. African Americans brought Harry S. Truman to the White House in 1948. Crump had treated blacks in Memphis like garbage, and women began to come politically active as well. Many voted for U.S. Senator Estes Kefauer. Estes Kefauer, yes. Estes Kefauer. Trust me, I had to look up pronunciation of the guy's name. But he went on to become a major political figure in the Kennedy administration. Crump would never recover from this cocktail of political mistakes. Both Truman as president and Kefauer as senator went on to become extremely influential Democrats, both of whom didn't abide by the Crump machine. So you can imagine Crump's panic. First, you have the Battle of Athens, people shooting each other in the streets. Then you have a hapless governor and Governor McCord. And then 1948 rolls around and your machine has become a political liability. These weren't the days of FDR where government money flowed like wine at a party. Between the ascent of new leadership, the loss of political machines in far-flung places like Athens, and his general age, Tennessee chipped away at Crump's rule. In so many ways, Athens was a kickoff for the political sea change. It showed the absolute ham-handed nature of the Democrat administration and demonstrated to the entire country that Tennessee was a corrupt backwater. You're not doing much for the image, Crump. Crump's influence post-World War II without question waned. By the time he died in 1954, he'd lost virtually all of his power except his influence in Memphis. It made sense that new attitudes had invigorated new constituencies, though. People around the country had drank the Kool-Aid of the propaganda. FDR had been fireside chatting. There had been an office of propaganda in many of the different agencies of the United States government. The Kool-Aid was out there. It was time to be drunk. Bill White's story makes it clear you don't just fill the heads of citizens and patriots with propaganda like that without expecting something to take hold. Black Americans themselves had served alongside white Americans in Europe. Women had been in factories and learned their value as laborers. The world had changed, and Crump didn't even bother to catch up. But as Crump crumbled, a group of gray hairs were working in McMinn County to change the game. Crump's departure from power had opened the vacuum. And as Aristotle said, everyone hates a vacuum. There was an opportunity to take measures to make sure that the mistakes that led to the battle wouldn't be repeated. The Good Government League, the Gray Hair League, operated in the spirit of the Battle of Athens, but they were operating the way people over 30 operate. As my dad always says, youth and vigor is no match for old age and treachery. This group of silver hairs, they didn't really include the young GIs like Bill White. You don't hear anything about Bill White participating in any good government league. The good government league, first of all, needed to change the way the state related to their county. They needed the county's rules to work for the citizens of that county and not for the political machine. And they took some action in that regard. They had the chance to, and they took it. McMinn County was, and still is, a pretty small county and rural compared to the rest of the state. And Athens was a city ruled by the state. What does that mean? Well, Athens, and as far as I can tell, McMinn County as a whole, had to ask the legislature, the Tennessee state legislature, for changes to its laws. So think, think about that for a second. That meant that if they didn't like the way something worked in their remote part of the state, they had to ask the legislature to pass what was called a private act to get anything changed. 
the Good Government League, after putting some thought into it, sent out a series of requests to the state legislature responding to this rule. This rule that had been in place since before the Battle of Athens and probably helped cause it. They dared the state legislature not to pass these reforms. The first change the Good Government League wanted was to disempower the county courts. The second change was that they replaced the county court authority with a county council-manager model of governance. Council manager. The county council would be independent of the judiciary, while the judiciary provided county oversight and decision-making. Reporting to the council was the county manager. So right now, you're getting a tripartite system, right? The county manager acts as an administrator and executive to the elected council, which is a legislative body, and the county courts would adjudicate. Boring. Will, why would anybody care about any of this? What, what are you talking about? Well, let's think back to what you've just listened to. Prior to the Good Government League's changes, you had an obscenely powerful county sheriff backed up by a stacked court system. Remember, Paul Cantrell was both state senator reporting to the legislature and on the county court. He was sharing both of these roles, and it's ludicrous. It courts corruption, if you don't mind the pun. Wow, all right. Essentially, a good, structured county government became a method of control on the sheriff's office and the ability for a political machine to operate within the county. So creating a more powerful and stable county government was a way for the gray hairs to divorce themselves just a little from the state of Tennessee. This was the practice of something called home rule. What is this home rule philosophy that the gray hairs were bringing up? Well, I'm glad you asked. Home rule is, simply, the ability for local governments to govern themselves instead of being governed by the state. Now, tell me to slow down if I'm going too fast. But, warning, this is going to get crunchy in the political science sense really fast. I've written this section and rewritten it and tried to be concise. What follows is a crash course in public administration. This is the only podcast I know where you have a detailed discussion of gunfight as well as municipal policy. If you aren't into that, I'm sorry, but I'm going to nerd out on this. Email me if you get confused. I want to lead off here with an idea that I hope will stick with you throughout this discussion. Centuries, centuries after creating representative federal government to oversee the United States, citizens across this country still grapple with the best form of government to manage people's needs at the municipal and local level. That's because democracy, whether it's large or it's small, is a constant construction project. Think caution tape and hard hats. That goes for your local government as well. If you're like me, your local government is kind of nebulous. My local newspaper is often consumed by news about the federal government. I love the Reading Eagle, but the headlines are about Donald Trump. In many ways, municipal government, or county government, or local government in general, is the lowliest form of government that exists. But it's also really important to your day-to-day life. It might be more important than whatever's being done in Washington, D.C. It's worth knowing about. Wherever you live, you have some form of local governance, usually a council and an executive. Think of it as the legislators and the executive branch in a tripartite federal system. Your super local might be a township, it might be a borough, it might be a city. Whatever it is, it's the simplest level of government that interacts with you in your daily life. But every state has some form of county. Now, sometimes they don't call it county, I'm looking at you, Louisiana, with your parishes. 
Counties often have councils and managers as well. They have their own form of government. But let's just talk about and generalize about counties and local governments. If you're in charge of one of these local governing organizations, you can't just run around doing whatever you want. You don't operate on your own. These low-tier governmental structures, local and county, are subservient to the larger ones, the state and federal governments. Think of it this way. If there's a dispute about a road between you and your local board of supervisors, but the state government gets involved, guess who usually gets to make the final say? Well, what do you mean, Will? What did the Tennessee state government have to do with Athens? The answer is plenty. Crump ruled his entire state with a steel fist, and Cantrell was an outpost of this power structure. I want you to think back to earlier in this podcast and what some of the flaws might have been in the system that reared their ugly heads during the battle. I think the most obvious is that sheriff's office, and that's why the gray hairs were trying to limit the power of it. The sheriff of McMinn County and plenty of other sheriffs across the state had overwhelming power in the 1940s. Sheriffs acted as the sole law enforcement authority in many counties. That meant monitoring elections, and yes, those are the elections that got you into power. But wait, there's more. The sheriff's office also had a salary that, by law, could be supplemented by grabbing people and shaking them down. Paul Cantrell walked away with a lot of money taken from the citizens of McMinn County. But who allowed the sheriff to act like a jerk? Who told the sheriff what their authority was? How come it was only the electorate that got to kick these guys out? The answer was the Tennessee General Assembly. The state-level government was dictating how the sheriff acted. You might recall back in Chapter 2 that Paul Cantrell grumbled he couldn't change the fee-grabbing system. Remember his promise, no more fee-grabbing deputies? Well, he said it was up to the state of Tennessee and its legislature whether deputies and sheriffs got bonuses. And he wasn't wrong. According to most states, counties and municipalities and cities all have to abide by something called Dillon's Rule. Dillon's Rule was the product of a judge named Dillon in Iowa in the 19th century. Dillon stated that local governments like counties and municipalities and towns and cities all derived their power from the state government. In fact, Dillon said that the state government, quote, breathed life, unquote, into those smaller governmental forms and that they couldn't exist without the state government. I'm getting to be too much of a libertarian in my old age, but I immediately see a problem with Dillon's rule, especially in 1940s Tennessee. Back then, the Tennessee state government was a political machine run by a single party, the Democrats, dancing to the mad music of a single powerful politician named E.H. Crump. Given how elections went in eastern Tennessee, with the sheriff's office cracking skulls and shooting people and then winning in a landslide, Why would the single party running the legislature in Nashville change anything? Why would they bother? Just let things run the way they are. Cantrell, as representative senator from McMinn County, didn't bother to push the state legislature to strike down any overreaches. He didn't want them to. He had Mansfield back home beating the crap out of people. Cantrell was winning, and he intended to keep winning. Dillon's rule makes sense on paper, I think. I mean, you can't have each municipality doing whatever it wanted. That would be chaos. That would be way too much freedom. Yeah, if you hear some sarcasm in my voice, that's on purpose. But it probably made a lot of sense to implement Dillon's rule when states had populations of, like, less than 100,000 people or something, when horses were the fastest way to get from here to there. Well, enter a Michigan man named Thomas Cooley. Cooley has the opposite view of Dillon. 
The Cooley Doctrine, as it's called, is seen as the basis of the principle of home rule. Yes, home rule. That's the thing that the gray hairs were trying to get, right? Smaller, local governments should be able to run themselves under the Cooley Doctrine. Cooley said famously that, quote, Local government is a matter of absolute right, and the state cannot take it away. End quote. That libertarian part of me wants to grab this statement and print it out and put it on the wall in a gilded frame. Now this makes sense to me. Now take Dillon's rule and take the Cooley Doctrine and put yourself in the position of a state legislature. Let's say you're the party leader of a big, powerful political party. <clears throat> crump, crump, <clears throat> crump, crump, crump. <clears throat> Do you want to give counties and cities home rule if it means you might lose political power? No way can you do that. That's out of the question, right? So now that you've gotten this lesson, you can start to see the tension between states and counties and states and cities and states and municipalities. That's the same tension that you actually get between states and the federal government in our federalist system regarding things like, say, environmental policy. The Battle of Athens brought this tension between the state and the local right into the forefront of everyone's minds. Those gray hairs in the Good Government League, well, they didn't pick up guns, but in the aftermath of the Battle of Athens, they did push the needle a little bit on home rule. Now, here's the thing. Only because McMinn County had taken up arms did any of this actually pass. I really doubt that anyone would have taken the good government group seriously in the legislature without violence taking place. The good government league just took advantage of a nasty situation and tried to push through measures that would protect them from the whims of the state legislature. And all that national news about Athens had meant that others around the country were interested. Word started to spread. People from outside eastern Tennessee wanted to know more. The Red Book reports that other good government leagues traveled to McMinn and met with the good government league of gray hairs in our fair city of Athens to hear about the new ways they were structuring their governments. Fascinating, right? Out of the fire and the blood came something new and original. I think there's a great research paper here, studying the influence of the Battle of Athens and the good government league in Tennessee and seeing what effect that had on municipal policies in the latter half of the 20th century. Is that a PhD thesis or what? But I'm going to need a few more podcast sponsors before I can really dive into that question. Suffice to say, today, Tennessee is in part, though not wholly, a home rule state. So there you have it. The collapse of an old order and the rise of a new one, maybe a tweaked one, but a new one, with Athens acting as a kind of catalyst for the change. Sovereignty, well, while not totally, went from the state down to a more local level. But I want to pause for a second as we meditate on the idea of the old order being challenged by the actions of a few yahoos who broke into a National Guard armory. Why did it come to this? Why did it take a rural mob to change the way government worked in Tennessee? Let's take a change of setting for a moment. I'd like to introduce you to one of my favorite historical figures. His name is Ibn Khaldun. He was a medieval Moroccan scholar who studied religious and cultural movements. He's often called the father of modern sociology. His ambition to be a scholar of sociology had legs. He traveled all over the world and learned how cultures thrived and how they fell. He even tried to write a world history, and you have to give him credit for actually trying. In his introduction to the world history, called the Mukadama, Khaldun has a theory that I think speaks to the situation in Athens, and maybe to these changes that came from outside. 
Khaldun believed in an urban-rural divide in cultures. The urbane, for him, was associated with decadence. Decadence meant losing sight of purity and idealism. What does decadence look like? Well, think of Roman vomitoriums, where people ate to excess and barfed it all back up, or the excesses of putting perfume and fashion above hard work. To Khaldun, the city loosened morality. The rural, to him, on the other hand, was a place from which purity came, sometimes blinding and even harmful purity. The religious movements he studied involved the successive empires of North Africa and how they fell to radicals coming out of the desert, armed with ideals and something else, namely what he called social cohesion. Asabia, which is the word he used for this social cohesion, is sort of a mix of Hegel's zeitgeist and Richard Dawkins' memetics. Social cohesion is what keeps a group together and keeps them vibrant. The decadent bicker and get caught up in nonsense and forget all about the higher virtues like temperance, hard work, and idealism. They argue about how they stack the chairs on the Titanic. Groups with purity and idealism have more social cohesion. They're the ones trying to man the boats. Anyway, this is a major simplification of Khaldun's ideas. But maybe you'll allow me to paint on eastern Tennessee the ideas of a medieval African Muslim. People like Bill White lived poor, under the thumb of the decadent and self-absorbed politicians of their age. They lived on the outside. And then Bill White went on his Joseph Campbell-style hero's journey, traveling the world and fighting for the idealism of democracy and freedom. He and the other GIs came home armed with that idealism and a new kind of arsabia, a social cohesion of combat and violence and hardship, all built on top of a childhood spent wandering the malaria-soaked Tennessee Valley, segued into fighting through the malaria-soaked jungles of the Pacific Islands. They lived on the outside, many of them for years and years. When they got home, their attention went inward to the political core of their culture. Meanwhile, the decadent Democrats had been thuggishly enforcing their powers against women, children, and old men. When the GIs came home, the decadent political apparatus didn't stand a chance. An old order was overthrown by a new order with more social cohesion. Supported by Republicans, GIs took power and became the center of the political apparatus. Now look, I'm stretching this a little bit, but I kind of think that the idea of political insider and political outsider works with the urban-rural divide that Khaldun set out with, but you get the idea. Now, there's a second part to Ibn Khaldun's thesis that I think is equally interesting. He believed that social cohesion breaks down the closer it gets to the urbane. The group that came to power with their idealism actually would be replaced by a group with more social cohesion later. In other words, best intentions do not always make a lasting peace. People become corrupted when they interact with the urbane. Khaldun believed that the cycle of history was ideologies and groups thrown down and replaced over and over again. A group came from the rural, they became the urban, and then they were overthrown again by the rural. So it went for Athens. A few minutes ago, I was telling you that the gray hairs had started tweaking the system and trying to fix things, that the world was becoming right again. But it didn't last. As you're about to find out, corruption can set in quite fast when you've gotten into power. In 1947, several of the original GIs who ran on the GI ticket wrote an open letter to several local media outlets. 
It's said that since the 1946 election, I quote, people have been beaten up, homes fired into, and threats made, unquote. They said that the nonpartisan GI party was at an end and that one political machine, the Cantrell machine, had been replaced by another. That machine was Republican. In the 1948 election, where Truman won and Crump lost momentum, Republican Otto Kennedy announced that there would be no nonpartisan ticket as there had been two years ago. GIs would run as Republicans if they so wished. Otto Kennedy, that old Republican operative from the Cloak and Dagger meeting, then became sheriff, voted in by a majority. Almost nobody was prosecuted for the 1946 riots, with the notable exception of Wendy Weiss, who got one to three years for assaulting Tom Gillespie. By assaulting, they mean shooting, but one to three years. Do you kind of hear what Ibn Khaldun was saying yet, about corruption setting in when you reach power? Bill White himself would later serve as a deputy to Otto Kennedy. He said about this in his oral history that, quote, They put me in as deputy because one of the reasons they put me in as deputy was to scare them GIs. They wanted me to control the GIs. They, the GIs, fired into them people's houses and everything else. And that was my job, to get out there and keep those GIs straight, and I did. I had 16 fights in one weekend, fighting GIs, keeping them from shooting them in people's houses and beating up people. My fists got so sore I couldn't stick them in my pocket. I had knots on my head like a seed potato, end quote. Bill says that he had to fight the GIs with his fists because it created respect. And according to him, fee-grabbing continued for four years. That's right. The GI administration continued fee-grabbing, and then Republican Sheriff Otto Kennedy continued it until 1950, which, as far as I can tell, was the point at which the state legislature finally, finally eliminated fee-grabbing. But I think many of the citizens of McMinn County felt cheated. The G.I.s, once they had ascended to power, were no better than the Democrats who had left. Ibn Khaldun's cycle goes on and on. So what happened to Bill White after he served his eight years as a deputy? He says he finally got tired of it. Quote, quit it. Bought me a lodge in the mountains and went to the mountains. End quote. Self-described hillbilly that he was, I don't think that Bill White ever really lost his idealism. So our hero on the final stages of his hero's journey, turned away from Athens and McMinn and went up to the mountains of eastern Tennessee to found a place called Telica Lodge near Bald River Falls. It's still around, I believe, and offers a nice vacation spot if you're adventuring in the nearby national forests. Bill White spent his latter days hunting. Apparently, Bill would hunt bears and boars with a spear until age 55. But, you know, if anyone could hunt with a spear... It would be Bill White. He later lost a son to an armed burglary in Athens. And even after that tragedy, Bill stayed quite active. Most notably, there's an article in the Knoxville News Sentinel that I have a scan of. The headline is, Valued Samurai Sword Goes Back to Japanese General's Family. Now, you're going to have to think way back to the soldier chapter. This was the sword that Bill White took when he had a bayonet fight with a Japanese officer in a dark bunker in Tarawa. You can see Bill White's wide grin in this picture. When the Japanese family of the samurai sword owner came to Tennessee with credentials, Bill welcomed them. They had a 400-year history with this old sword, and as a result, Bill granted it back to them. 
He had previously actually donated it to Tennessee Wesleyan, but figured this was a better location for it. That's, of course, the same university campus that he'd stalked by during the sunset on August 1st, 1946. Now, I looked for it. I looked for Bill White's obituary. I did not find it. I can keep looking. I believe I did find his sons, though, who had inherited the hunting lodge from his old man before passing on himself. For his part, Paul Cantrell truly did fade out of politics. As the Good Government League struggled to try and change the world, and the GIs continued to act in a corrupt way, Paul Cantrell returned to McMinn County. Mostly Etowah, I think. His return was quiet, and as far as I could tell, people accepted him back. One interesting aspect of this story was the quiet papering over of the entire Battle of Athens. Paul Cantrell is a case in point. The whole thing seemed to be embarrassing to everyone, which is how Paul Cantrell was allowed back into McMinn County life. I think this was an effort to restore normalcy by the community. He worked in his banking business and managed the other capital he'd gathered in the years of the Great Depression. Allegedly, he began selling used cars, which tells you something about the retirement plan of many politicians. He also invested himself in his dogs. Republican Otto Kennedy allegedly visited Cantrell a few times, and they'd talk hounds and hunting. I don't imagine the 1946 election came up very often. Athens seemed to like the idea of keeping the conflict quashed. Did find Paul Cantrell's obituary, though. He ended up in the New York Times. The headline reads, quote, Paul Cantrell, former leader of Tennessee Machine, is dead, end quote. He died in 1962 at age 66 on a Sunday night. In the picture, Paul Cantrell wears his Stetson hat, a patterned bow tie, and his glasses. He has a keen look in his eyes. I have one more story before I leave off Counted as Cast and move on to another project. As I was researching the Battle of Athens and all its ludicrous twists and turns, I came across a news story from just a few years ago. This was put out by WTVC News Channel 9 in eastern Tennessee. In the clip, a man talks about how local police officials in McMinn County stopped him for driving with tinted windows. Yes, tinted windows. The officers claimed that the windows were just a little too dark. Police issued tickets and forced citizens to pay a fee on pain of jail time. Good old McMinn County. Thank you for listening to Counted as Cast. I've really appreciated your attention over the past few hours. I hope you enjoyed the subject as much as I have. If you have questions about the podcast, if you have comments, you can reach me through the email and the show notes. As the spirit grabs me, I'll be doing more podcasting, and I hope you'll join me for those as well. Thank you.